Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This one recorded on October 24th of 2019, episode number 85, a couple of days after we recorded the previous one. But hey, so much news has happened in a short period of time. I'll probably delay the release of this one by a couple of days, but I've got somebody in the know on all of the latest announcements uh, from new cameras and uh, technology that we will be seeing as photographers in our hands fairly soon. He may have already had some of them in his hands at least i know in one scenario he has uh this is jordan drake back on the show that jordan drake yes the one from dp review tv jordan how are you i'm doing great don um it's been kind of a busy fall as everybody paying attention to the camera announcements has seen but i think there's a light at the end of the time like distant light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> yeah well and it's it's funny too because some of these announcements that uh i didn't really expect them to happen when they're happening mm-hmm. um but i i guess they have to and uh before we get into that though uh what has been keeping you busy aside from running around and wrangling all of this new gear that's it (laughs) it's a full-time gig yeah exactly it's been uh, a lot of product announcements and those are really you know getting a standard review or something like that uh is actually less work than a lot of these pre-release ones because you are looking at a brand new camera there's no outside information that you can draw on to confirm your findings so you've got to actually really test the hell out of these things so it's been a lot of that um but it's a really exciting time and i mean we all know photography, the photography industry is struggling a bit right now. So it's cool to see a lot of excitement, a lot of new products, like they're really trying to push through this. Yeah. And it, it's funny, you mentioned uh, that if you are writing a review, there's other material out there for you to base your research on, right? There's complaints in forums about features not working the way that they expect to or compliments on certain design implementations. And you can then kind of guide your conversation around what everybody, what the initial buzz has been about. But if there's no, if there's no initial buzz, I mean, you got to tinker and play with every single button and menu and find something worthy of talking about that might be different from the previous generation, uh, better, worse, you know, good, bad, and ugly. And mm-hmm. uh, that that's boring. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I mean, <laughs> like, thankfully, I've got like an amazing team in Seattle that's generally doing the same thing as well. But there's a couple of them where we've got the camera and they don't have it yet. And yeah, you got to just make sure everything that you're saying is bulletproof. Yeah, uh, you and, and uh, Chris Nichols, of course, your uh, your partner in crime on DP Review TV. Uh, you guys do a great job, and I, I watched uh, one recently that you put out uh, on the Fuji X Pro Three, which is mm-hmm. uh, the second story in our rundown. Um, but I also went back and watched a uh, a first look that you had done on the Lumix S One H, and there were some really cool features in there that I had kind of missed from the press releases. So uh, keep on fighting the good fight, sir. We will continue. All right, let's get to our first story. Uh, And this one uh, just came down today. And Canon uh, has announced the, uh, at least the initial development of the EOS 1DX Mark III. Mm -hmm. And so we've got it in pictures and we have some specs of it now reported on DP Review. Uh, Canon aims to please professionals with the EOS 1DX Mark III. Now, we come to this from a couple of interesting perspectives. I was a longtime 1DX Mark II user. Uh, and so to see the camera uh, that is its successor is interesting. And I've got, a, uh, I guess, a valid point of view from that. Um, but I'm also now a, a mirrorless shooter. And so to see this as a flagship digital SLR flapping mirror style is, uh, I think, and I'd love to know your thoughts, uh, Jordan. 
that this is the swan song of DSLRs. This is the last best camera. Um, just like the Canon EOS 1V was the best that they could make a film camera, this is the end of the line. Yeah, I'd agree. And I said when the Nikon D850 came out, I think this is going to be the last great DSLR. And I'm actually quite impressed with what they were able to put together based on even this initial list here. So I may have to rescind that. And 1DX3 may be the last. It'll certainly, I would say, be Canon's last great DSLR. Right. Uh, and, and so based on the information that they've provided us, which um, arguably isn't a whole lot, we don't know the resolution or a lot of details about the sensor itself. Um, they do state that, um, and I, I'll read from their press release, and it, they say, um, a new a CMOS sensor and digit processor that will deliver greater image quality at even higher ISOs. Um, so better and better, right? That's great. I, I take uh, issue with the language there. It's not even higher ISOs. I guess it would be higher ISO sensitivity settings, higher gain. Um, it's a misuse term. Anyhow. <laughs> we'll, we'll write canon. Well, we'll write an angry letter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so based on the, the camera's features, and it's great that you're on here as well, it looks like it's just a better version of the Mark II. You know, and, and they're going to be uh, iterating faster, better in just about every area, including uh, a remarkable feat doing 16 frames per second uh, with the optical viewfinder, which I really thought would have been impossible. They're pushing that to its absolute limits. And then if you're using live view, they are uh, really juicing that mechanical shutter to uh, to execute 20 frames per second. Of course, the mirror would be locked up in, uh, in that particular scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, this is the first professional camera that I've seen, uh, maybe I'm wrong, that supports the HEIF, the high efficiency image file that Apple uh, pioneered in their iPhones, I think a couple of years ago now that they've been uh, using that uh, to replace JPEGs. I'm, I'm sure JPEG is still going to be an option in there, right. but now we have uh, another format, which I'm glad it's getting some legs. It needs support from the industry uh, to become a little bit more mainstream. Yeah. Now, um, now one other thing. We did have a HLG output on the Panasonic cameras, which was kind of our first. The hybrid log gamut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But for photo, um, was an option in the S1, um, that whole series. So this is really interesting just to get a 10-bit thing in, uh, I would say, a more mainstream camera manufacturer. I do really think this is going to push that format. Right, and you are right about the uh, the, the HLG uh, a 10-bit format um, that uh, Panasonic has put out. All of them are going to, like the HEIF, uh, et cetera, they're going to stay in the shadows unless every manufacturer jumps on board and and does something with them, regardless of what format they're using, something other than JPEG. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad to see that at least the, um, uh, the camera to put on a pedestal uh, in Canon's lineup is going to have a feature like that. Well, now, uh, um, go ahead. No, uh, I, I want you to talk on video because there's some really interesting video specs here. Yeah, I'm, we've always, I would say video is the one area where Canon has been holding back the most in comparison to all the other manufacturers out there. Uh, uh, we and ripped into is, them on, on last week's episode. About I listened to it. It was great. Yeah, <laughs> it was absolutely necessary. Uh, and this does bring them to a very contemporary kind of spec. And this is why I find the 1DX really exciting. Things like that. HEIF support, um, and then the video capture on this, this is stuff we know is going to be rolled into their more consumer-oriented mirrorless cameras in the future. Uh, the 1D series has always been a test bed. It's just weird that you know it's a test bed in a different format from what I think the majority of photographers will be buying. But we have um, 
the 10 bit 422 at up to 60 frames per second. Uh, now, what we don't know is how much that's going to crop, uh, which has always been an issue with Canon. Uh, depends yep. how fast they can read this sensor out. Um, what's interesting is they're shooting 20 frames per second with the mirror locked up, but that's with a mechanical shutter, which makes me think this might not be the fastest electronic shutter to read out if they're pushing that hard to get the sensor moving that fast. So we'll see right. uh, once we get the full video spec on that. Uh, the big thing I have to shout out, News Shooter, uh, who do amazing work, um, they got in touch with Canon and found out that this will also record internal RAW. And I heard record- that in a B&H video, and it wasn't in the press release, so I was yeah, wondering... Nowhere in it. Yeah. Uh, and what's really exciting is this is going to be recording their RAW light format uh, from the C500, C200, which is a fantastic compressed RAW format, which is what we really need to start seeing in more of in the video world. Now, when you say compressed RAW, how much smaller are the files versus any trade-offs in terms of quality? It's about an 8 to 1 compression rate, so an eighth the size, which is enormous uh, for 4K. Uh, Capture is what we saw in the C200, C500. This might be different from that, of course. But I really think the size of video RAW files, they've been incredibly inefficient, um, has been what's been holding back a lot of consumer acceptance of that. And we're really seeing that now. We're seeing things like... uh, the Nikon Z6 and the um, Panasonic S1H are going to be supporting compressed RAW in the um, Apple ProRes RAW format. So we're getting closer and closer to what we have in the photo side, where we have smaller manageable files with no appreciable quality drop. Right. And to have the the RAW uh, internal, I think that's great. Uh, yes, Nikon is going to have support for RAW through external recorders, the, uh, the Ninja V from Atomos, and I believe Panasonic will have for some of their S-series bodies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so RAW is becoming something that is much more accessible to people that are not going out and, and buying a decidedly video-exclusive camera. Um, and so that kind of, that opens the doors for, for people shooting different things. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on an s one to play around with once I can shoot raw uh, to do some uh, documentary filming this winter. Uh, and, and I think that to have it more conveniently packaged inside the camera, uh, mm-hmm. well, it doesn't really bother me when I'm shooting studio stuff. And in fact, it's helpful to have an external monitor when I'm that close up on certain subjects. Um, convenience is always key. Now, uh, dual CF Express cards. Uh, that was yes. that was an interesting thing too because uh, we have CF Express cards starting to hit the market right now. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with this, it is the um, uh, the next generation version of XQD cards. It's pin compatible. It's exactly the same thing. It's like plugging an SSD into your computer. And then uh, when SSDs change their uh, communication protocol to the NVMe non-volatile memory express format, um, that vastly improved the throughput on the exact same bus uh, that was being previously used on the PCI Express bus. Um, so now we have that coming to memory cards and our speeds are just ludicrously fast, uh, faster than you'd need, which is why they claim that it has about five times the buffer when you're shooting in high speed burst. It's not that they've increased the buffer memory in the camera by five times. I'm sure it has everything to do with the fact that the bottleneck was the memory card. And now that bottleneck has been significantly widened. Yeah, just dumping that out faster and faster. It makes a ton of sense. And I'm sure we're going to, this will be the year where we get all our firmware updates for our XQD cameras to support that. Uh, this one, it's just great. Right out of the box, it's going to support that in time for the 2020 Olympics, which is really all that this camera is designed to hit, I think. 
Well, and, and you can see connectivity was key on this as well, mm-hmm. um, where for the first time they've bundled, this is weird for me though, they've bundled Wi-Fi into the camera, which previously you'd have to buy an external dongle that plugged into the side of the camera for, and there's an external dongle that gives you better Wi-Fi separately. I mean, seriously, Canon, could you not just try to just stop nickel and diming us when you're spending that much money on a camera and you want us to buy an extra adapter to make one feature even better? <sighs> I mean, they didn't include it with the C500 too, and that's a, you know, $18,000 camera. So Right. They, they, I, I understand got, that if you have the Wi-Fi yeah. in the body, it's not it might not have as much range, and so there, there could be... Uh, Don't make some, apologies for them, Don. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to find some way to play devil's advocate to some degree, but you're right. And Okay, so even today, I get an email from uh, Canon Canada's e-store. I guess I'm on their mailing list. And they said that the Canon IV Rec, which is the um, the crowdfunded, it was on Indiegogo. Although I don't really want to say crowdfunded because the product was finished. They were just using it as a marketing platform more than anything else. And I just wanted to see how that process would go with a big company. So I put in for one. They wouldn't ship it to Canada at the time. So I had to ship it to my good buddy, Steve Brazel. And uh, it's on its way to me now because uh, that's happened. I get a note from Canon stating that, hey, it's available now from the Canon Canada e-store, all right, uh, before I've even gotten mine sent from the U.S. It cost me $160 Canadian with the exchange on Indiegogo, and that was supposed to have a like a $10 off, like 7% discount off of whatever the retail price is. It's retailing for $149.99 Canadian. So I got hosed again by Canon. So thank you, Canon. <laughs> <laughs> They're always a delight. They are. They are. All right. Uh, so that a couple more things I quickly wanted to jump through that really stood out to me. Uh, did you notice the reference to them moving on to deep learning autofocus? Oh, I this? did. I think everybody's doing that now. That is just the uh, the, the method du jour of uh, of making autofocus better. But uh, what I love about that is you can. Uh, you can train that learning algorithm better over time. It's not like it's fixed in hardware. It's a software component. So long as you over-provision your processing power just a little bit, you have the room to increase the effectiveness of that autofocus over the long-term life of that camera. Uh, Now, that's not saying they will, uh, but they most certainly could if they chose to. Yeah, what I found interesting there is uh, it was very vague. They threw this right at the end of the portion talking about the optical viewfinder performance, but to not specifically say that the deep learning would be used with that. And if it is, this would be the first time they've been able to use those techniques with an optical viewfinder system. Because you don't have the sensor actively seeing the data, which you would need to use AI for, um, unless it can... Do, I'm sure at least some way uh, with the vast amount of autofocus points that it has that it can uh, predict in some way what the subject is and where it's moving and right. their algorithms will be different from others for sure. Uh, but to see them jumping in that game, uh, it's or maybe that's that uh, AI autofocus would be you know one separate version of it for the optical viewfinder and one separate version of it when you're using um, the uh, the live view functions of the camera so yeah. I just can't uh, see them doing that because uh, you know we know the optical's going away I would guess uh, they were pretty vague in the press release but I think that's only going to be in live view using the dual pixel and we'll see that rolled in properly to the mirrorless right. pro camera when that comes out 
Yeah, and uh, it, there was another interesting note here about the AF on button having a new feature mm-hmm. on it. And uh, and so you can see in the product photos that it looks like there is a, uh, a little black uh, glossy circle in the middle of that AF on button. And my speculation would be that this is now some sort of four-way joystick or like a trackpad that you could move your thumb over uh, or press down and, uh, and move it around so that when you are actively looking through the viewfinder with that button depressed, you can actively control your autofocus point very dynamically and intuitively uh, without taking your eye off of the action. Um, yeah. Now, why they wouldn't just come out and say that, I have no idea. Yeah, I think it might be to jump between faces and things like that, objects, uh, and then have a traditional joystick as well, I think could be uh, an option. But who knows? It's all, we're just spitballing here. Yeah, and uh, well, that's exactly the point. If you have uh, face detection uh, and you have got like five different faces and you want to jump between them, uh, then that makes a ton of sense. Um, Or if you have a very specific, yeah, if you've got um, spot metering and spot focus on a specific point, you want to actively adjust that uh, and tell it where to go or maybe to track whatever object is at that point around the scene specifically Mm -hmm. uh, and always maintain autofocus on that object that it might not have identified as an object and until you told it something. This is all the, the stuff that you can build into uh, into a system if you do it correctly. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's all we know, really. I mean, it was just sort of a development announcement saying all of the uh, bells and whistles that they would like to announce right now. And we'll have another wave of probably uh, a full spec sheet that yeah. uh, introduces us to uh, resolution and uh, and everything else. I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't say this is going to be their highest resolution cameras. The the one D series traditionally have not been, uh, with the exception being uh, the one uh, DS Mark III, I believe. Uh, I think that topped out at twenty one megapixels before anything else was on the market that could yeah. do that. Uh, but it's all about speed. It's all about speed and quality. Like you mentioned, having this ready for the twenty twenty Olympics uh, in Tokyo uh, is probably their main uh, their main game. So uh, cool. Uh, uh, Canon, thank you for uh, giving the DSLR a decent farewell with this camera. Um, but it's funny because when I was reading uh, at the launch of the EOS R, they had uh, a white paper that basically said, yeah, this platform's dead. I mean, we've pushed it as far as we possibly can in terms of lens design and communication between lens and camera. It just fundamentally cannot get any better. Um, so this final camera is just to satisfy people already invested in the platform uh, to make sure that they don't jump ship to a different platform too quickly, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people were debating jumping to A9s for the Olympics. uh, And this is their way of being like, let's just stick with us for one more uh, Olympics. Then you'll see what we have up our sleeves. There we go. Uh, But you were also testing, and there is a great video out on uh, on dpreview.com. And uh, that is... uh, uh, Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake uh, testing out the Fujifilm X-Pro3. And uh, there's a bunch of other articles on DP Review. Uh, so this one that I found has some nice specs conveniently for us to talk about. Um, their initial review, what's new and how it compares. And at the time that I loaded this up, uh, it has 593 comments on it. Uh, yep, the, the Canon, right. the Canon story, by the way, was 821. So these are really, uh, getting the, um, I'll, I'll call them conversations, although they degrade from that quite quickly on the internet, uh, stirring up from, uh, from photographers around the world. Now you've had your hands on this camera, so I'll let you take this one from the top. 
Sure. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of the Fuji X-T3. I think it's one of the most well-rounded cameras ever brought out. And they've always had a problem differentiating their X-Pro lines from their X-T lines. Uh, the only difference was the X-Pros had a optical hybrid rangefinder style viewfinder on them. Uh, so this time they were like, let's do something dramatic to really differentiate them. And a great way to do that is to inconvenience the photographer <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> Uh, what whatever do you mean well uh the screen on the back of it uh isn't accessible if you actually want to use the lcd go through your menus anything like that until you pull it out to a waist level kind of style or below the camera but you can't just have it on the back of the camera and i can't think of another example of something like this closest i could come up with is the leica md which, which doesn't had, have a screen at all no right? screen you had to use your smartphone to change all your camera settings and stuff uh so I had a very mixed uh, thoughts on it, especially because we decided to film the episode on that camera. Uh, thankfully, I'm taller than Chris, so I could shoot him with a waist level finder the whole time. <laughs> if, uh, if things were reversed, it might have been much more difficult. Uh, but what I did love, and I guess, yeah, I am somewhat nostalgic at heart, is the little back low resolution display, uh, which shows you it looks exactly like the Fuji box art of your so it looks like you pulled the box uh, art off stuck it to the back which we all used to do to remind ourselves what we were shooting and it's super cute and i liked it immediately is it practical uh like in no way uh, i would say the xt3 is a better camera for almost everyone out there but if you want something that's going to force you to slow down and have some fun i do see some merit there i was saying to chris if i were teaching a photography class I might make all of my students go out and shoot with this camera for a week, just with the optical viewfinder. It's a fun way of forcing it to pre-visualize and stuff like that, but you are going to get less pictures in focus and properly exposed using that optical than if you just kicked it over to the EVF and treated it like any other mirrorless camera. Um, what was your take when you saw this thing done? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I love the uh, the hybrid viewfinder, and and I wish that any camera that was a rangefinder design, like Leica, can take a uh, a cue from this design fundamental uh, in terms of having a lot of information right where your eye uh, is smushed up against the screen, optically and digitally. In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure there's ways to even push that hybridization even farther. Yeah. Um, that we just haven't uh, seen yet because there's not a whole lot of development within this area. Uh, and I even think that because the, uh, the EVFs have become such a high resolution item in these cameras, like we're pushing like 5.7 million dots on some of them. Um, and uh, that's only going to get better and better that even having a, a screen on the back might not even be necessary. If you're going with this motif, right? And you've got a screen that you can look through at insanely high resolution, higher resolution than the back screen would be anyhow. Um, why can you not handle everything just through that screen and just go all in? Because having that flip down design uh, to shoot kind of waist level or to have the main screen and everything else hidden, I don't find that very useful. Uh, I, I find that no matter how good you make that screen, you could put the, the nicest OLED display in that. But if it's very hard to get to, mm -hmm. then what's the point of having it? Yeah. On on the back too, uh, which was kind of odd looking at the, the overall design. You're exactly right with the little tear off the piece of the box and you put it in there. It's exactly what it looks like. 
that opens up a ton of extra real estate on the back of the camera that is 100% neglected. There's yeah. nothing done with that in any possible way. And that's, I think that's a, a missed mark. You could have maybe slid that off to the side and, and had some uh, new kind of feature, like something that you could like run your finger up and down, like in a way to slide through images or just make it a more unique experience that actually adds something to the, uh, to the device rather than taking away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all they needed to do was put a little hinge so you could flip it all the way around. And I would have been very happy with that design because I do have fun with the optical viewfinder. Um, there are some other things on there that's kind of interesting that they are kind of debuting with it. They have a new film emulation mode, uh, which is actually really lovely uh, for all our color images in the video. Uh, they were all shot with their new ProNeg profile. Um, and the big one that stood out and part of why I was happy we were going to talk about this camera is they never mentioned, Fuji never mentioned to me that they've got a new HDR, uh, version in this. And usually I would say, you know, HDR in camera, I don't care. I'm just going to shoot RAWs or more likely I'm just going to shoot an underexposed RAW and push it, you know, it's, it's really bracket and deal with it in post because you might only need the middle one or you can recover highlights from one darker and do it yourself manually. Right. Yeah, exactly. Not a big deal. But what they do have is a handheld HDR, which is very similar to what we see in our smartphones right now. And they did not make a big deal of this. Thankfully, uh, Ted Forbes from Art of Photography brought this to my attention in his video, and I tested it yesterday, and it is very cool. Uh, it does struggle a bit with, we had uh, some leaves blowing quickly in the breeze, struggled with that, but the majority of scenes, like a backlit portrait, it did a fantastic job. Just hand-holding, knocking out a few, you get uh, all your raw files, and you get a JPEG with all the images blended for you. And this is kind of Fuji's first kick at computational-style photography, and I think it's it, very successful, actually. So I wish I'd known more about that when we did the preview. We'll definitely be playing with it more for the full review. Right. And it's features like that, too, that um, you might not see in every camera um, just because it's not needed by everybody or there's extra complexity or Fuji has done it um, better than anybody else. They probably have just established uh, a a nice uh, portfolio of patents regarding how they did it. Um, Sort of I'm similar similar to what Olympus must have gotten when they pushed out the OMD EM1X for all of their high resolution handheld stuff, because that was their real shtick is uh, uh, you know, get higher resolution or whatever uh, off a tripod, right? Make mm-hmm. yourself a little bit more mobile, oddly with the heaviest camera they've ever made. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I was it interesting to see on uh, on this particular design that they use titanium as a metal mm-hmm. to uh, to have the top and the bottom plates, which is notoriously hard to uh, to to machine and and to work with. I know um, I use the uh, the red hydrogen phone. And uh, they had made a version of it available in titanium. And I originally put in for that one, um, but they were delayed and delayed. And uh, every one of their first attempts at creating the case, uh, the, the body for the phone failed. They were all failures. So uh, that might be a difficult proposition for Fuji. I have no idea what their manufacturing complexities are with that regard. Um, but also people aren't asking for it. Really? I mean, no. it's it's a nice line item to have in there, but if you want to make the process more difficult, give something of a greater advantage to the user rather than just using more luxurious metals uh, mm-hmm. along the way. And they had... Uh, 
uh, a coating on like a diamond yes. something coating that uh, Chris was uh, not so happy about in your video. It really looked like somebody kind of threw up on the camera and then quickly tried to wipe it clean without having any good cleaning tools and then presented it as if nothing happened to do to the person that they borrowed the camera for. Uh, not saying that's ever happened to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was oddly specific, Tom. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that coating as well. It was extremely scratch resistant. But yeah, I tweeted out the other day, like, I hope you don't commit a crime while you've got that camera on your person, because it is going to be covered in handguns and fingerprints and DNA. It is uh, a gold mine for forensic evidence. So yeah. not, a, not a huge fan of it. But the camera itself is fun. I could totally see renting it. I think that would be a fun thing to do for a weekend or for a short trip or something like that. Otherwise, though, I'm just going back to my X-T3. You know what would be fun is if Fuji decided to open up the uh, the little film box cards on the back to have user-submitted stuff. So if mm. you wanted to create your own uh, film style, your own lookup table, or however you were to, to do it, and Fuji could even provide you a tool to do this, you could put your own little box art on the back. It could mimic another style of film that you're uh, familiar with from another manufacturer, or you could just make, you know, um, uh, uh, Jordan's uh, Ectochrome 4000. Of course, uh, yes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and just come up with whatever you wanted it to, to look like in terms of a profile, and then uh, make the camera just kind of feel more you. Uh, yeah. So there, there's room for some level of um, exploration within this yeah. design. I really hope this is not where it ends because if this is a Gen 1 device and they decide to take feedback from users of this camera and make it just better down the road, um, I, I don't remember when the X-Pro2 came out, how many years ago it was, what their life cycle is for these products. Um, but I hope whenever the X-Pro4 comes out, they don't abandon these ideas. Don't call it a mistake. Uh, mm -hmm. Use this camera in its current form as a stepping stone to whatever the next level of awesome is going to be. Yeah, I think Fuji and Panasonic are by far the two best for that. So I would not be surprised to see a ton of feedback work its way into that, including, which I didn't touch on, custom focus limiter, which we made a video. Oh, yeah, that Every was camera huge. needs to have this. It's so clever. It's super intuitive. Um Sony had it for a while, it went away, and this works fantastic. So anybody shooting sports, unfortunately, it's the wrong camera for that. It should be on a sports model or something like that. But insanely useful. Every lens, you can set a uh, preset front and back focus. I could even see it be useful for macro photography because um, you don't have that constant jumping in front and behind and still be able to track, say, like a bug walking along a branch or something. Uh, right. It's pretty cool. The point where that uh, that fails is when you're labeling the distance in feet uh, or all the way to infinity yeah. or whatever. Because if you add extension tubes onto a macro lens, it completely ruins all of those numbers. They don't mean anything anymore. So uh, you'd have to do some guessing and testing to figure out exactly where your actual limits would be. Um, but you'd have to do that anyhow. Because if it's not labeling it in feet and infinity, it's labeling it with the mountains and the flowers, which is equally as stupid. Um <laughs> I tried to include you there in my uh, use case, Don, but it yeah. fell apart very quickly. <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm trying here. And, and I know that you were commenting on the uh, the S1H, uh, that it, it's done away with the mountains and flower symbols Finally, and the Panics, yeah. uh, Panasonic side of things too. So um, 
Yeah, it would be, I, I think uh, you had made commentary, I believe it was you, um, that that little back LCD screen would be useful if you could put a histogram or a waveform or yeah. something on there that was more descriptive and informative than uh, just the, the film information. But we'll see where it goes. Uh, that That's something that they could easily do in software if they get uh, an engineering team to uh, just stay dedicated to improving cameras like this. Yep, they do have them there. They're great. They do. Um, all right, let's talk about technology and how it's pushing limits in certain areas. The next story, also from DP Review. Love that website. Oh, so good. Talented <laughs> people working there. Absolutely. So Omnivision uh, is a uh, manufacturer of tiny things, uh, has created the world's smallest commercially available image sensor. And I'm not sure if the image is photoshopped because it kind of looks like the depth is a little bit off on the way that they're depicting it. But if the size is to scale, um, this uh, this sensor will like fit on one of the grooves on your fingerprint and mm-hmm. not touch the ones next to it uh, effectively. So it is absolutely tiny. Uh, the Omnivision um, OV6948 ultra compact uh, one thirty-sixth inch uh, backside illuminated sensor uh, designed specifically for medical applications. So it's very low resolution in the size. It's only 200 by 200 pixels. Um, but it, um, and they're saying that it's got a 120 degree field of view at 30 frames per second, which means it might actually have a lens on it at that size if they're already labeling a field of view. So you wouldn't have to add much more to it. Well, maybe a computer system that actually reads the information seems to have a four pin pinout on the bottom of it where you have to uh, connect it up to something. But um, that this thing is absolutely tiny. It's just 0.57 millimeters by 0.57 millimeters. Um, and they put it next to a black peppercorn uh, for scale, and you it could fit towers like hundred, over it. Yeah, yeah, you could fit like a hundred of them inside of a black peppercorn. So, um, what do you think about this? I mean, clearly, it's not a camera that we're going to be using. We might be on the receiving end of it if you need like a, uh, you know, uh, surgery Just where they it. stick yeah. all the stuff in, and and or you know, um, I wouldn't it be cool if uh, if you like if there was like a pill that you could swallow that had like 200 of these inside and it just, you know, encircled your body uh, in terms of your digestive tract and everything else to find any problems along the way. Uh, Lots of cool ideas for this. Um, I don't know how much more to talk about with this. Yeah, I I, I don't think there's too much. I could see it being maybe useful to slap a couple of these on an existing camera just to build a low resolution depth map now that we're seeing like, you know, fake bokeh processing and stuff. But honestly, I think it's a camera for medical and industrial and it's very cool to see how much they're shrinking it down. I just, I struggled to come up with practical applications for the kind of art we're trying to make. Well, and I, I looked at the um, uh, the pixel size. It's 1.75 micron pixel size. And that is so tiny. But it also means that because of that size, uh, you would have to have a fairly wide aperture lens attached to it to avoid things like diffraction. So right. e- even at a 200 by 200 pixel resolution, it's not going to be very good at 200 by 200 pixels, which made me draw the comparison to the, uh, the Game Boy camera which uh, back in the 1990s, this was a little attachment that you could plug on to the Nintendo Game Boy. It had a resolution of, I think, 140 by 140 pixels with four shades of gray. 
And, uh, and so, you know, there is actually a guy out there. I was talking to him recently, um, that makes a device that lets you, uh, uh, download your, uh, Game Boy camera images to, uh, an SD card and that you can just, you know, bring them onto your computer for anybody that wants to do that. Um, but if you could imagine, like building one of these into like a little mouse helmet and putting that on a mouse and then releasing them into the wild and seeing where that would go. Uh, you could probably make a computer system small enough to, uh, to do that uh, all within that tiny little helmet. Who knows what you could do with such small tech. Um, yeah. People more creative than me. Let me know. Yeah, what exactly. can you do with this? All right. Well, that's, that's again, um, let's move on, shall we? An article from Petapixel, um, and uh, this one says, Top Leica expert says farewell. Quote, the soul of Leica products has been eradicated. Um, and that's very dramatic, I suppose. That's such a Petapixel headline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't it ever? Um, but look at classic Leica. Look at Leica from like the 1920s through the 1950s and 60s, uh, especially when the uh, M-series rangefinder came up in, uh, I think, 1954 or somewhere around that uh, marker. Um, that was where Leica became the Leica that we know and love, or that, at least that we remember. Um, that was an entirely different era in photography. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore. And if Leica didn't change from that uh, mentality they would be dead just like every other company in that class yeah. uh, or companies that have, uh, they went bankrupt and were bought by others and so on and so forth. They just did not survive without evolving. Now, I don't know if Leica has evolved in exactly the right way. Uh, slapping their name on smartphones, mm -hmm. I think, devalues their brand. Uh, or having very clearly rebadged Panasonic cameras yes. uh, in, in their lineup, um, I don't think that was very helpful either. Uh, but the core brand, I personally think it's still there. If you pick up mm -hmm. uh, a Leica uh, M-series rangefinder, it's got the exact same design characteristics, and they're still doing all their crazy, way too many limited edition cameras that cost far more money than I would ever spend on a camera. Uh, but what are your thoughts about camera brands in general? I mean, we're talking about Leica here, but how are these brands evolving to meet consumer needs? And can niches be a sole path for a company like this anymore? Yeah, and I think Leica is very smart. I mean, they're one of the most profitable, especially for their size, camera companies when everyone else is really struggling out there. And I've been to the Wetzler Leica factory and seen all the stuff. And yes, there are a bunch of Lenny Kravitz limited edition you know, floating around in the museum and things like that. Um, but they have some of the best lens designers in the world. And I would hate to see all of those people who, uh, you know, it is a relatively small company. They're making some innovative stuff. And I think in um, the case specifically of the lenses, uh, we all know that Panasonic has Leica branded lenses. Now, those are not made in the Leica factory. Those are designed by Leica. Um, and they actually have very specific list of uh, criteria that need to be hit at the Panasonic factory to, uh, to produce those lenses. I've been to the Panasonic factory as well and seen a separate area for those Leica branded lenses. So they have extremely high quality control standards for them. My issue with Leica is um, if they make a camera that is a very unique shooting experience, I think they can justify charging whatever they need to, to hand build and produce and do all the R&D on those. Uh, I think the M10, 
the entire series there. They feel like a digital M6. They're beautifully machined. They're fun to shoot with. And you're not getting an experience like that from other cameras. Uh, where I have more issues are things like the Leica CL or um, their first crack at a full-frame mirrorless. Um, the SL, well, right? what, what we call, yeah, the SL. Uh, yeah, what we call full-frame mirrorless, although sort of the M-series might fall in that. Um, those ones really felt like very similar to what other manufacturers are putting out, just with you know better materials, maybe handmade, but the shooting experience wasn't appreciably different. I think that's what this designer is saying, is a lot of their new products do definitely feel like you're using something from another manufacturer. Now, I think Leica will always make unique stuff. The M-series is very unique. And I think they could do a lot of the stuff that we saw in that X-Pro3 as well with it. Give it a more useful hybrid viewfinder on it. Um, Put an OLED in there so that you can quickly preview your images through the viewfinder. Uh, There's a lot of room for them to grow with that. But uh, yeah, I do think that it does maybe cheapen the brand slightly. But if doing things like rebranding Huawei phones to have Leica badges on them, if they're actually designing the optics... Uh, and it's keeping like a float, I don't have a real problem with it. I want as many camera companies to be successful as possible. And they found a way, and it might involve collector's editions and a lot of T-shirts, but uh, <laughs> I I have a lot of respect for what they're doing. And uh, I'm curious what their next big, um, you know, create a very different camera is going to be. Like, I love the Leica Q2. is a completely unique experience to shoot and it's very very modern so they've definitely got potential there we'll just uh have to see how it goes but yeah I'm and it's it's not the uh, the first time that they've created similar shooting experiences there was the leica r system right and of that course, was yeah. uh, that was a standard slr kind of format as well um and that's not recent. I mean, that I don't remember exactly when that was introduced, but th- that goes back quite into their uh, into their history. So I, I I guess it's just more of an evolution to that. You're right about the experience. You know, if we go back to what Fuji's doing with the X Pro Three, that's a camera designed around an experience. It's not a camera designed around image quality, and I'm sure the image quality is there, but it's not the design fundamentals that the engineers were were thinking. Uh, you know, from the from the very beginning. So Leica with the SL, and the SL2 is coming as well, uh, using the L mount and having the accessibility and compatibility with lenses from um, Panasonic and from Sigma and third parties as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, uh, a copy of the um, the Meyer Optic Trio Plan 100 uh, version 2 uh, from OPC Optics now uh, owns the Meyer Optic brand through their uh, disillusion and their, and their bankruptcy. Um, they're making it in the L mount. It'll be a purely mechanical lens, mind you, but there's room for third parties to come into that. And that kind of devalues what the Leica experience is going to be because it's less predictable. Yes, there's been uh, third-party M rangefinder lenses from just about everybody under the sun as well. So maybe that's not the point. But um, if they don't differentiate with the camera body themselves, uh, then it's just going to feel like another camera with a much, much higher price tag. Now, what could they do? Well, we talked about in last uh, last week's episode with the uh, uh, Nikon Noct, Noctilux, and uh, um, uh, whatever the Rumiere lens was. That uh, that we're using all similar ideas with f zero point nine five, Leica designed the uh, M uh, Noctilux because it had to have a small barrel because it couldn't obstruct the viewfinder. Right? If you were to design a Noctilux type class product, a lens for the L mount, uh, and maybe smash through zero point nine five somehow, get 
wider than that. I mean, you can technically, although the cost would be astronomical, like mm-hmm. is no stranger to astronomical prices. Um, and if that's part of the experience that they can bring to the table for something like the SL series cameras, then more power to them. Um, yeah. But they got to stay in business to do that. Well, and you have to remember, Leica pioneered the L mount. They had the first camera in that mount. And I've spoken to the lens designers there, and they're like, we just wanted to get around the, the limitations of M. You know, being able to, like you said, see past the lens with the rangefinder on that. Uh, so I would not be surprised at all to see them produce a ridiculous, incredibly bright, giant lens that's something they never could have made before. They certainly made some for the R. Uh, their 180 millimeter, I think it was like a 1.7 or something, was an unbelievable uh, lens. Uh, so we'll probably see things like that. But you have to remember with those rebranded lens too, they're doing stuff like the Pana Leica 10 to 25 millimeter uh, f1.7 zoom, stuff like that. Uh, they're very clever engineers and they're making cool stuff no one else is doing. Yeah. And there's a lot of people engineering lenses these days. There are so many small upstart companies that um, will often pitch their wares on Kickstarter or some other platform for them to get the initial funds together. Um, And they'll have uh, hipster effects in terms of creating like soap bubble bokeh or swirly backgrounds or whatever. Um, But that's also about the experience too. And you have to remember that Leica was a status symbol. And now, well, it still is. I mean, if you if you're going around with a dedicated Leica camera, it is still that status symbol. It's less so when they devalue the brand on smartphones and and on other things. Um, I love my Leica 45 millimeter macro lens for Micro Four Thirds. It's probably the the best engineered, uh, sharpest macro lens I've ever used. Um, but it, the brand, the Leica brand associated with it is not nearly as remarkable as that red dot on a camera body itself. Right. Um, and so they got to stay in business. But if they're such a small manufacturer, they've got to lend them uh, their design fundamentals. They're Leica never made film. Uh, so Leica doesn't make the sensor. I mean, they're not going to be doing that part of the equation. So in terms of an industrial design point of view, those engineers are hopefully going to stay employed uh, for quite some time and let the naysayers say nay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they continue to do with the L-mount because that's that's now right in my wheelhouse. That's the kind of camera that I'm shooting with on a regular basis. Um, which, by the way, uh, I was mentioning before we started recording, that I broke it. I, I broke my S1R, and I'm probably one of the first people to actually do this. So it's uh, they're waiting for parts to come back uh, from Japan. Uh, I mangled the shutter totally on my own uh, accord here. Like the, the camera was not defective in any way. Uh, when I was designing my stereoscopic 3D septum, this is a part of that lens, uh, a Leica lens, by the way, uh, from 1954, that has two lenses inside the barrel to shoot stereoscopic 3D, um, half the sensor for the left eye, half for the right. Um, to divide that, to make sure that they don't crosstalk, you have to have a little, um, uh, it, well, they call it a septum. It just divides things uh, up all the way as far back as you can go. I measured it out very carefully. I even asked Panasonic to send me one of their early sample cameras so that I could test out to make sure that I wouldn't hit the shutter. I didn't hit the shutter. It was working perfectly fine. Constantly using that lens on the camera. If you're shooting really fast, that shutter might not fall perfectly flat. It might have a tiny little bit of wiggle to it. 
even uh, like a half a millimeter of a wiggle is enough to uh, catch that septum that I put in and took a giant chunk out of the shutter. So totally my fault. Uh, I have redesigned that part of my my lens and uh, and my camera has been in the shop for three weeks. So uh, I so the I'm, risks of living on the edge, Don. I know I'm sad. Um Ah, uh, well. Okay, let's go on to our next story. We've got five stories in the rundown before we get to our picks of the week. The Canon one came in at the last minute. Didn't want to let this one go, though. Um, nope. So this is from F-Stoppers. Um, an Iranian music streaming site is removing women from their own album covers due to strict censorship laws. Now, I try to stay away from politics on this show, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners appreciate that. Uh, I don't associate politics with human rights, and I think that women's rights are human rights. And so if uh, Iran has laws that are counter to what I consider human rights, um, they should change them. But they're not going to if all the Iranians that are listening to this podcast um, go uh, clamor to the streets in Tehran uh, over our commentary. But it's it's not going to happen. So I don't uh, think we're the tipping point. <laughs> I, I don't think we're the tipping point here. So uh, effectively, Iran has laws that prevent women from being uncovered in public. And that can include pictures of women seen in public venues or in this case on a, uh, a music streaming site. So if you're a woman musician and you've got a photo of you or any other women for that matter on the cover of your album, that is now gone uh, from your cover. It's not like they just put up like a, a blank black image, box, a black box I, with yeah. just with the words of the title on it, which I think would make some level of sense. Uh, maybe they could even be creative and choose a color for the background. Yeah. But no, they take the original so art. So much more work. <laughs> and they, oh man, the, the, the Photoshop techniques at use here are quite fun. Um, they're, they're great. So this is really what I want to talk about and, uh, and talk about how bad these are. Which one's your favorite, Jordan? Oh, hang on. Oh, I closed the, I did love, damn it, Don, you got me on the spot now. (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll tell you. uh, You you go, riff, riff, riff. So some of them are, are, uh, hilarious. Uh, you've got, um, women like me, uh, and uh, so that's a uh, little mix featuring Nicki Minaj. It's four women on the cover. For that one, they just Gaussian blurred the entire thing. They just didn't even bother doing anything whatsoever. Uh, for Celine Dion, uh, there's uh, from her Courage album, there's fire in behind her. Um, they left the fire and they just content a word filled around her body. And you can clearly see that because some of the words get duplicated because that was what the content aware fill algorithm uh, had decided to generate. Uh, so those two, I think, are, are kind of my favorites. The very first one at the top of the article, I think, is just so the star silly. Born is wonderful. Yeah. Oh, it's great because what they just did is they took the smudge tool. And they just smudged her until she was unrecognizable as a human being, like there is some ethereal ghost in her place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to go with Star is Born uh, is my, I especially like the blurring around his hand as well, because there was just a sliver of, I think that's her purse, uh, but that was a little offensive as well, and the purse had to go as well. Uh, <laughs> it's it's wonderful. I, I mean, it let's suppose my uh, my dream of being a female recording artist were to come true. Uh, I would have so much fun coming up with 
the Iranian cover art versions myself for these things. What could you replace all the women with? Uh, you know, assorted animals, uh, just guys, just more guys looking straight at each other, things like that. There's or a, or a guy there. wearing exactly the same clothing the same as outfit, the woman. Yep. The exact exactly. same outfit. Even put in like, uh, you know, so some fake breasts to really amp this up. Like go total drag queen on them. And no, that's a man, not me. And you yep. can't take that down. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> Uh, maybe this will get the people in the streets. Oh, maybe, maybe. But the funny thing is, they're not censoring the music at all. They don't have any no. laws against that. It's just seeing women in public. And so if you are talking totally dirty, ugly, swearing language that I, I, I don't usually find a lot of things offensive in terms of how people talk. I mean, I talk politely, but talk however you want. There's some really nasty songs that are completely uncensored on these platforms. Uh, it's just kind of laughable. But it also goes to show that censorship laws around the world, um, they're not changing quickly. And we're not just mm -hmm. talking about Iran. We're talking, of course, in in any non-democratic country as well, like China, yeah. um, where we just had the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square uh, in China, and that's still completely censored uh, from the uh, the majority of their populace. They have no idea that that massacre had happened. So uh, yeah, censorship, it abounds. Uh, we are, uh, I'm, I'm happy to live in, in a free country here in Canada. We just had mm -hmm. our elections and I was kind of sad to see that the, uh, the number of people going out to the polls was lower than it was in the previous election. And, uh, you know, if you have the, the rights and the privileges to make your opinion known in a free country, I think that everybody should, uh, um, should do that. Did you vote Jordan? I did vote Don. Good. Good. I don't care who you voted for, so long as you voted. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, to look at what's going on, you know, politically, um, since we're on that topic, and I never really get political, but I want to say one thing that I like about the Canadian election. There's a limited campaigning time between 36 and 56 days. That's it. It's, it's illegal wonderful. to campaign outside of that time. Uh, so, you know, that I, I think that more countries should adopt a similar methodology. One specifically, one just slightly south would be really great if you guys yeah. could work on that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, Jordan, uh, what uh, what is your pick of the week for this uh, uh, this episode? Well, I would. I knew I was coming on the show. I was going to do some gear, which I've been known to do. But yesterday, I walked into the camera store, which has an amazing library. Uh, their bookstore there is fantastic, uh, and the guy who runs the book uh, said, "Hey, I'm thinking of recommending this book to uh, amateur filmmakers." What do you think of it? You want to take a look? And I flipped through it and I bought it immediately. So this is my pick uh, is The Language of the Lens by Gustavo Mercado. I love when we get a uh, Spanish name that I can pronounce. It doesn't happen often. Uh, but it's a really compelling idea where uh, there's so many deeply technical books about how a lens can influence a moving shot. Um, but this, they went and grabbed a whole pile of examples from fairly mainstream, but also world cinema, a huge collection of uh, different types of movies and give you examples of just the lens. This isn't talking about the lighting, the direction. Uh, it does occasionally touch on how to cut different focal lengths together, but very approachable, very easy to read. Um, I just, I've just been burning through it and I just find it fascinating, even though a lot of it is stuff that, you know, you learn fairly early on in a film career. And for photographers, I think there's a lot there as well. I think the storytelling aspect of photography is one that gets overlooked a lot and you know filmmaking techniques have been developed over a hundred years on how to give people an emotional response to a single frame 
Uh, and I think they'll get some really good ideas out of this, as well as getting a giant list of movies that, oh, I've always meant to watch that. I should really check that out. That's a beautiful frame from it. So uh, Gustavo's Mercado, The Language of the Lens, it's part of a series called The Filmmaker's Eye. And when I was sending you the link, I found out that he also has one about composition uh, is the other one in that and how to use a composition to enhance storytelling. So I will be scooping that up as well, but uh, very impressed. And it's a nice affordable book as well as you don't as long as you don't get the uh, hardcover. Yeah, which, I see the hardcover listed yeah. at almost $180 Canadian, which is, uh, well, hey, if, if you, you, you love the guy, sure. But uh, yeah. um, 35 uh, bucks at the camera store. So Oh, even know. cheaper than on Amazon here. Uh, that's great. And that's Canadian. Uh, yeah. You can get the Kindle edition as well. And that's also available if you want to read it in a digital format. Um, this is one that I might have to pick up. I'll, I'll be at the camera store uh, next month. Uh, I don't be meeting you there, uh, Jordan, as well. So that'll be fun. And I'll pick up a copy of this book. Uh, hopefully you don't make too many recommendations because I'll, I'll walk home with very heavy luggage. Um, okay, so uh, that was a great pick. Thank you very much for that. And uh, I'm putting it on my reading list. Uh, before I get to my pick, just a quick note, like we'd mentioned in last week's episode that Steve Brazel and I are going to be doing a critique show. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be a link in the show notes to the Flickr group please join, please post something with the tag BTS critique uh, and make sure that your images are uh, able to be downloaded as well so that we can uh, you know, get a nice high res version of that uh, when we are putting the show together. Um, looking forward to seeing all of the work that people are creating and having sort of a rapid fire discussion about, uh, uh, about them, uh, the ins, the outs, the, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, but always being constructive in our commentary. And, uh, and I think that it will be an action packed show. Uh, looking forward to recording that also next looking month. Looking forward to seeing it. And I got to submit one of Chris's Jordan in the fetal position images uh, and see, <laughs> I want a real critique on that. Oh, that, that would be great. That'd be great. We could eventually we might even be able to critique some of your, uh, your, your video stuff too. I love when you do your, your wooden nickels episodes. Uh, when is the next one of those coming out? That'll come out. I'm waiting on a S one H with the new 247828. That's what we're going to use for the next one. So once we get a production 247828, get ready. That episode's coming out. Awesome. Okay, my pick. Uh, Stereo Photo Maker is a free piece of software, uh, and this is designed to make creating 3D images very, very easy. And if you have no interest in this because you don't think you'd ever find value in this, you can do this without any extra hardware whatsoever at home. So one of the things that you can uh, easily test with is uh, take a picture, and then just shift your body slightly to the other foot and take another picture. And that separation from uh, one position to another is enough parallax to create some really fun 3D effects. Now, the images won't be aligned properly, but Stereo Photo Maker, uh, again, free software, actively updated, uh, has a, just basically a one button press where you can automatically realign uh, the images and then output them into formats that require you to uh, you know, put on some of the uh, red-blue uh, anaglyph glasses um, that you might remember from your childhood, which are readily available uh, mm-hmm. on Amazon or anywhere else. Uh, or if you can train yourself to cross your eyes to, to see 3D, that's a very valuable technique. Or if you've ever seen those magic eye posters in the past and got those to work, that's also a 3D effect. You don't need a lot of equipment to start to experience 3D. And I want to encourage people to just try this. I mean, maybe I'll make it your homework. Just give it a shot. Because if you can get 3D to work, it 
it's kind of uh, addictive. It's almost like it's infectious because then you want to see how much depth every scene is going to have. And yes, I'm a little bit biased. I've been a fan of 3D work for quite some time, uh, all the way since my youth when I uh, you know, first looked through a Nintendo Virtual Boy in Walmart at some point, and it was almost nauseous, the effect that it would provide you. Um, but uh, viewing it's come a long way. And uh, this is a fun little tool. If you haven't explored this area of photography, you've got everything you need to see things differently right at your fingertips. So I think it just came up with the tagline for this software is better than the virtual boy. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, although it would be really fun to see if anybody's put a virtual boy emulator on the uh, the red hydrogen phone, because that would be kind of a oh. fun way to to see that in 3D without having to uh, to, you know, vomit. So there we go. Um, Jordan, thank you again for being on this uh, episode of Photo Geek Weekly. We can find the show notes for this show at photogeekweekly.com. But where can people find you? You can find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm at that Jordan Drake. And of course, on YouTube, uh, dpreview.com is the uh, URL. But just search for DP Review. We'll pop right up. And we have two episodes every week. Fantastic. And I, uh, I'm an avid watcher of the stuff that you and Chris get up to there. Uh, so keep making magic and uh, we'll have you back on the show soon. Awesome. Thanks, Don. Always fun All right. to be here. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, it's time to get out and shoot. Mm-hmm.